0: installment of the SUS News podcast series where we discuss the news and issues that are relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, let's say a big hello to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hello out
1: there. It's been uh, quite a busy week. We've got a lot to talk about.
0: We do have a lot to talk about. Um, I did see that uh, Reuters did a nice two-parter. And, uh, Gene, you didn't hold back with your comments. I, 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 <laughs> I, and I think you've been hanging out with me too long, uh, Mr. Robinson.
1: No, come on. You know, just the facts. You know, that that's all you have to do. You just state it straight up what has happened and what's going on. I mean, there there's no really... Uh, anything behind it other than just what happened and it was uh, it was factual and I think the guy I think Chris did a good job on it you know I don't I don't know him but uh, I think from a, a media standpoint I think the guy did a good job you know it's a, it was a two-parter and it was it was very nice it kind of explained about how the Chinese are ramping up and things that are going on here stateside that are slowing down and it, it just it is what it is isn't it
0: well, it is what it is, um, but uh you know it's kind of funny how there's all of this other stuff going on, and people aren't really don't really realize what's happening. still talking to people, still trying to you know talk to another kid yesterday, South Dakota wants to do this as a business, he can't figure it out, he's trying to suss out the rules and all the rest of this, and however, I see all these people doing it, and you know, how come you know I'm like, I wish. You know, I could. I, I wish I had the magic sentence. You know, it's all uh, by comfort level. You know, some people are comfortable operating outside of federal regulations. Some people are in denial. Uh, the real, uh, for me, the, the the heartbreaker is, is guy wants to follow the law. He's at a severe disadvantage because the guy that's not following the law is out there making money and building a client base. And when the regs do go, you know. Here he is. He's, he's waiting to get in on the game. Anyway, I, I did uh, another one I wanted to talk about. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I, I called uh, AIAA about their policy symposium they're having here in California. It's the Civilian Applications of UAV's California Perspective. And I called to inquire um, how it was civilian. And it's, one of the speakers is a Director for Operations for the Center for Asymmetrical Warfare. That sounds civilian to you, Gene.
1: Warfare? No, that. Why we okay for civilian operations? How does that fit? Okay, go ahead. Just, let, just tell us a little bit about it. Uh,
0: well, so that was my question. Is I just don't I don't understand the asymmetrical warfare thing. But anyway, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. And then after that, so I had to ask. I was like, well, you know, is Aiwa a pro aviation group? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, things started to get a little contentious after that. But, I mean, you know, because that's not, <clears throat> to me, warfare and commercial are not, you know, working together. But, anyway, so then, um, you know, I said, okay, well, you have some other, uh, you know, vendors on there, DOD vendors. And, uh, you know, he disagreed with me. He said that basically AeroVironment was the, the only, only manufacturer or company that had any experience with search and rescue. And I I was like, really? because I... I hadn't heard them doing any search and rescue, but uh, he says, "Well, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan." And uh, I was kind of like, "Well, I don't." That that that's more of a combat thing, in my mind, Gene.
1: I would have to agree if if you're in the sandbox or the rock pile, that's that's a theater of operations that's uh, generally considered military by just about all aspects. And I okay. I, I don't see how some of those tactics can apply. I mean, I've I've only been doing search and rescue now for a little bit, but um, I don't know that I'd use any of those tactics. But uh, that's just me. Uh, you know, we've developed it, you know, over the course of about eight years, and I, I, military tactics don't have a lot to do with what we do.
0: No, and then I kind of made that point. Uh, he hung up on me but <laughs> oh, okay okay uh, yeah. uh, whatever i you know i don't know i'm just a plucky kid out here you know trying to make his way in the world um you know uh the yesterday was the uh we had the near miss of the uh air Italia and the drone out there jfk which is causing quite a stir and uh, I actually I actually got interviewed for NBC Nightly News, but I got cut, which is probably an okay thing because there was no makeup person, and I probably looked like Frankenstein. But whatever, you know, uh, upward and onward. How about you, Gene? Anything catch catch your eye you'd like to talk about?
1: Well, you know that, that back to that incident, Patrick. It was surprising to me. We had we had first. Seen that the uh, the pilot had reported it, but then also a passenger actually had seen it and reported it to the uh, the flight crew, and that gives you an idea of the perception and the, the public awareness of what's going on with unmanned aircraft, and yeah. that that people that are sitting in seat you know six C over there happen to look out the window and recognize what they saw, so. That's kind of a good and bad thing, of course, that they they see it and they they recognize what it is. The really bad thing was is that it was at eighteen hundred feet and it was in the, uh, the the approach path of JFK. Which to me, guys, we've been saying this for a long time. If you're FPVers or you're flying for uh, doing even for recreational purposes, regardless of of what you're doing commercially, you got to be aware of what's going on out there in the airspace. You gotta think about where you're at. You gotta I mean eighteen hundred feet, goodness gracious, that's you know, you're out well out over the outer marker on the ILS flight float going in for J F K. Right. That that's that's we've been trying to stress this for a long time. The RCAPA folks have been trying to stress it. You need to learn the airspace and you just can't grab a quadcopter and, you know, go up in the key. (laughs) Right.
0: well, you know, that was the point I made, I, you know, and I don't know if that made good copy. It, it seems to, a lot of the news uh, is really like fear-based, uh, you know, and, and sensationalized uh, commentary. That was part of my interview was like people need to get educated. People, you don't fly, you know, in the approach of any airport. I talked about AC-9157 as a... Um, you know, it's a good guideline, and uh, the 400 feet, 1500 feet laterally, three miles minimum from an airport. You know, get educated. Anybody could go out on the internet. I mean, that. And, and I've been saying this for years. You know, all of this has been coming, and some people are like, "Oh, that that Egan guy is a he's a a, a visionary or a futurist." <laughs> you know. Like, nah, I don't I don't know if I'm that, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know, I'm on the internet, I look around, people can buy these systems now for, you know, a couple hundred bucks, uh, you can buy a pretty robust uh, system for about $500, and people's like, uh, ask, well, you know, even the reporter was like, well, isn't there a, isn't there some sort of electronic or software governor you could put on this thing to limit, limit the altitude, and I said, yeah, there is, you know, that's feasible, you could do all kinds of stuff, but I said, you know, this This group is pretty technically savvy, and uh, they'd probably hack that or have a workaround in about 60 seconds, you know, for that. So it's more of common sense regulation, which I I emphasized. Uh, Most people want to operate within the law. Maybe that could be debatable because there's thousands of people flying every day. I brought that up too. It's all the time. It's been going on. Uh, really, you know, kind of people kind of think that this is all new and it's just starting to happen now, which is not the case. <laughs> going on for years. It's just that there's more uh, people doing it, I guess, and a lot more people that are not educated are just buying these things and flying them around. You know, and and you really should get educated. I mean, if if, if one of these things did, uh, I think they were kind of pushing me to like, oh, it'd have been a disaster. You know, I don't, I can't say how big the thing was. I, I can't. It'd be conjecture for me to say it was a disaster. I would just say that uh, anybody flying in that area, or another story we ran where people were flying and filming planes at uh, at, at Logan, I think it, in Boston, that is just. That's just crazy, man. That is just crazy, stupid. So, yep. you know, let's let's be responsible. Don't wreck it for everyone else. There is always a couple of bad apples. But anyway, my, the upshot was: go on the FAA's website, get educated. Um, you know, learn about the airspace. Let, let's let's use some common sense and uh, let's not have any tragedies. That, that's what I had to say, but uh, that got cut out. I guess that was too not fun enough. I don't know. Maybe it was the makeup. <laughs> but anywho, anyway, so anything else catch your catch your attention, Gene?
1: No, that's uh, that's the main thing. I was quite concerned about that and, and, and the perception. But uh, I tell you, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, our guests that are coming on. I haven't grown up on the Gulf Coast and in the impact zone for hurricanes and things like that. What did we always look to to, to get our hurricane information?
0: And, it was well, always
1: guys out there in noah
0: well and before we bring our our guest on i wanted to uh you know how'd the deal go with the alamo
1: oh uh actually that uh not much of a segue into ua's there but uh, uh we, Hi there. Did, well, we, did, we did deliver the the uh the cannon uh the from uh the its goat barn house to the uh to the alamo and it was very well received and uh i I'd like to say that uh, we are now starting a project. We're going to try to uh, build a real 18-pound cannon that we will uh, gift to the daughters of the Republic so that uh, we'll have a lasting legacy that will show up and and, uh, last a little bit longer than a Hollywood movie prop. It was very well received. It was was a good weekend, and, and we had a great time with it.
0: Well, I wish I was there. I love history, and I'm sure that was a lot of fun. Alright, well we we uh got off into the weeds, as it were. But let's bring on uh this episode forty one's uh guest, and that is uh Mr. Alan Leonardi, Deputy Director of NOAA Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. Hello, Alan. Hello. <laughs> uh how you doing today?
2: I'm great. Yourself?
0: I'm doing good. Uh, You know, I, there was a little bit of weather out there on the East Coast, but uh, it, I guess you got in. Some people are uh, taking the day off. I don't know what exactly happened out there. But in any event, um, as always, we, we bring guests uh, like yourself on the uh, program here. And, um, you know, maybe you could uh, give us a little background about yourself, what you do, and how you do it, and how you became involved with Unmanned Systems.
2: Sure thing, Patrick. I appreciate it being on the show also. Um, As you noted, I'm I'm the Deputy Director of NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory here in Miami, so we fortunately are avoiding any winter storms this time of year. Um, uh, My classical science background is in both meteorology and oceanography, and and my focus had always been on atmosphere-ocean interactions, uh, primarily through the use of complex numerical models of both the ocean and the atmosphere. Uh, but anybody who works in the modeling field long enough realizes that the models are really only as good as the data that you collect to either drive them or validate them. The challenge, of course, with that is that collecting some of the most important data um, can be either too expensive or too dangerous to collect in any practical manner. So that, that's really where unmanned systems come into play and where kind of my uh, entree into unmanned systems in the last few years has jumped in is is to give us an opportunity to gather data that we might not be able to gather in any other reasonable or cost-effective manner.
0: Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, the modeling is good, like you said, but it's, it's really no um, substitute for real data. Um, so, I, you know, I've been uh, privy to some of the work that NOAA has done over the years. Uh, there were some projects that were like uh, co-projects with NASA, uh, and, and years ago, there was a um, an incident where they flew an aerosonde into a uh, the eye of a hurricane. Were, were you a part of that, or were you aware of that? I know Noah's was a big group.
2: I, I was not, but my colleague that's sitting right next to me, Joe Cione, actually was part of that.
0: Alright, well, you know, uh, it, and it was kind of during the uh, the arc, it was kind of an interesting thing, The uh, I don't know if you guys knew Andy Roberts, he worked at NASA, and he kept saying, you know, you guys are having this arc, the FAA is throwing this arc, and how come Noah's not on the ark? And that was kind of a segue into that story about the aerosonde in the uh, eye of the hurricane, and maybe, Joe, we could talk about that real quick, Your that project.
3: Yeah, uh, Joe Sion here. I'm also at uh, NOAA's uh, Hurricane Research Division, uh, one of the divisions with an AOML. Um, yeah, I was the uh, principal investigator of that uh, mission back in 2005. I was into Hurricane Ophelia. So um, I don't know if you want me to give a background of some of my stuff or jump yeah, into that.
0: Well, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into uh, into that project.
3: Um, I've got a Ph.D. in meteorology. Also, like Alan, I have a minor in, in oceanography, too, uh, at NC State. And I've been here at the Hurricane Research Division since 97. And one of the other things we do is here is actually fly into hurricanes, not UAS, literally fly into man. You know, we have manned missions that go into the storm. And my background um, was not only looking at uh, air-sea interaction for hurricanes, but also winter storms. And it's just an extremely difficult region to to survey and to to get data on. Um, It's kind of exciting because it's sort of a last frontier or one of the frontiers that are very difficult to get information and to understand. Um, And so when we were flying, I realized we're never going to fly that low. We're going to get snapshots, if you will, of the data. Uh, and of the, of the conditions down there, but we're really never going to get a continuous look, which is the only way we're going to improve our understanding and ultimately to prove the uh, numerical models that we use to forecast these systems. So it became pretty clear that the only way to do that was really to look at UAS and and also um, uh, UOV, uh something that we we'll talk a little bit about as well. But uh, so I got into it that way, and that was way back in the early wild days of UAS when well, there was almost nothing going on in the civilian sense so we kind of really broke ground there and, and I don't know if you're aware that that mission um that i partnered with uh with NASA was the first tropical cyclone that was ever um countered by uh let me state that the first time we ever used unmanned systems to surveil uh, a tropical cyclone um so right yeah We used that and we followed it up in 2007. But you maybe want to talk about the the first one, the Ophelia flight.
0: Yeah, well, I remember that. uh, I remember that. And, uh, you know, people were saying, oh, this is the first time we've ever gotten data like this. And it was groundbreaking and yada, yada, yada. And uh, you guys decided, as I I heard it from the NASA side, um, decided to sacrifice the vehicle. And then I heard that the FAA pulled your COA because it, something like you guys didn't have enough reserve fuel, or you violated some of the terms of the COA, and there was a problem with that. It was that uh, was that all?
3: Well, not... I that, I don't know. That's one interpretation, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we were in restricted airspace. Um, we we jumped through you know all the hoops that we had to uh, to legally fly out there. Um, I mean, you've got to realize we're talking about. I don't have the specs exactly. I, I know the Mark IV. It's, um, I'm looking at the specs on the Mark IV, but we're talking somewhere in 25 pound aircraft, mm-hmm. um, 400 miles out at sea in a hurricane, 400 feet. So I don't know what the risk was, but but either way, you know that's something that um, you know that that that's really an FAA issue to decide what what's a, what's acceptable or not. Um, it's sort of a gray area to this day and um you know it it's something that really needs to be worked or if the civilian side of things are going to take off no pun intended well maybe pun yes. intended i
0: uh i agree with you but i i think that what it does is it shows um the listener uh gives more of a perspective i mean really i mean when i heard that one and i think that might have been at the same meeting where the the mount hood meeting which we could go into real quick Uh, which was when there was that lost hiker up there, and actually Gene had one of his aircraft involved in that search. And, you know, remember the FAA said that, uh, oh, well, all those UAS that were up there on Mount Hood looking for hikers, six went up and six crashed, you know. Um, What they didn't or failed to mention was uh, they didn't let the unmanned aircraft fly until the, uh, I think the winds were over 60 knots, and then they were like, gave them the green light to fly. Is that correct, Gene?
1: That, that is correct. Yes, we
0: did launch, and it was a measured 60-knot wind. Yeah, so I, I think what that shows to, to the listener or, or kind of explains to the listeners, at, at that time in, in history, there was kind of a – people weren't really looking to help unmanned aircraft out. Because just like a, you just said, Joe, I mean, we're out here 400 miles at sea in a hurricane at 400 feet. You know, what What, what other aircraft are going to be out there <laughs> Um, I don't know. So I think it was just a mindset and hopefully that's changing, uh, because things like that, these, the, where you're, you're out here doing stuff like that and getting this type of, uh, data, uh, to me is really exciting. So enough Debbie Downer, we'll move on. Uh, what, you know, so I know you guys have been doing some stuff, uh, since then, Joe, and, and maybe you could, uh, elaborate on that.
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty interesting. We, we had a follow-up mission um, in 2007 into in that same general area into uh, Hurricane Noel, um, and that was as it was sort of uh, becoming an extratropical, not really staying it's tropical. It was moving north. It's kind of difficult to keep up with the with the storm at that point using this traditional uh, what we call land uh, I call it land-based uh, UAS concept. Since that time, you know, it's very difficult to use the aerosonde type uh, land-operated CONOP, because you you have to trust Mother Nature to get close enough to where your operations are. You deploy a team to a location where you're going to launch the UAS. So to make a long story short, um, I decided that uh, it made more sense to go to an air-deployed CONOP. Since we fly into hurricanes using our P-3s, we started to partner up with the Navy, and that's what we've been working on since 2009, to use... um, some uh, technology that the Navy has been working with, with uh, BAE systems, now it's BAE, it used to be um, uh, ceramics, recently, advanced ceramics, uh, they were bought out by BAE, I'm not sure exactly when, but now, now we're working with BAE using the Coyote platform, um, which is a much smaller system and it doesn't have the range of something like an Aeroson, but it, it gets the job done. So we use our, our manned platform to get us there, uh, and then we release the uh, the Coyote Uh, At altitude and uh, we're looking at maybe an hour hopefully go up to maybe three or four hours eventually if battery technology gets us to the point where we can have a pretty long duration mission Uh, same sort of goal still flying at at low altitudes capture a region we can't capture but just do it a lot more efficiently Uh, we're in the test phase we've had one in 2009 we had one flight uh, clear air and um, we're still working to hope to get another clear Air test maybe late this spring early uh, this summer, and then eventually, if things go well, uh, to uh, get get something like this in a hurricane, we we the Navy and they have an SBIR to put a met met type package on the meteorological instrumentation uh, so that we can uh, measure the things that we need to measure. So, so that's what's been going on, and I can follow up a little bit more if you have any questions on that.
0: Well, yeah, I was kinda of wondering, you know, I mean and you covered some of that, but I mean are you guys uh primarily using uh fixed wing, uh do you using any VTOL or lighter than air, other other types of uh systems or are you you pretty much staying with just the one?
3: Um, we have uh as I said, the, are you all familiar with the coyote, what that what that's all
0: about? I am not familiar with the coyote.
3: Okay. well that is a pretty interesting system um it actually launches out of one of our a x b t which is a ocean sensor tube so it comes out sort of a maybe a two foot long um cigar if you will uh uses that existing chute and then it um pops out and the wings um uh, swing open once it once it's free so it's it's <laughs> it's pretty interesting u a v um, to look at, uh, we have another one that we're working with Embry Riddle, which is the, uses the same launch uh, uh, tube and te- similar technology, but the aircraft is is, is quite. Um, and that is the uh, the Gale UAS yes, that's uh, being designed out at. It actually has been designed out at Embry Riddle and working with a small manufacturing uh, company out there called Dynaworks. So those are the two. That one's a little bit longer term. We're not ready to go as compared to the coyote, let's say. Those are very similar. Uh, Outside of those two, I'll pop over to Alan here, who might want to talk about some other um, technology. I don't know if you want to talk about the ocean, but I guess as far as air goes, those those are the two platforms we're using here at, at our lab.
0: Well, I, I did want to talk about uh, some ocean stuff, um, but uh, we're going to move into that in the second fi- uh, second segment here, and we have to uh, pay the bills here with an advertisement. But, uh, okay, so I had one other question, Joe, and it, it sounds like you kind of already answered it, and that was I was uh, curious if you guys were kind of rolling your own stuff, but it does not sound like that. It sounds like you're you're partnering and working with other folks to develop systems for you, correct?
3: Yes, that's true.
0: Okay. Well, uh, now it's time to pay the bills. We're going to roll an ad here. Today's podcast is sponsored by Hood Technology, experts in advanced EO-IR gyro-stabilized four-axis imaging systems for small UAS. The company offers low-swap payloads integrating EO, MWare, and lasers to provide unparalleled long-range imaging from moving platforms. Visit www.hoodtech.com for more information. H-O-O-D-T-E-C-H dot com. All right. Well, we'd uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Hood Tech, for uh, sponsoring today's podcast. It's uh, advertisers like that that make this all possible. Anyway, moving into segment two. Uh, Alan, uh, we do want to talk about some of the other systems uh, that NOAA is employing. And, and the other day we talked a little uh, offline about that. And um, maybe if you could go into that. We're, we're interested in all unmanned technology. So whatever you're using and the benefits that, uh, that NOAA is kind of getting f- from those different Sure,
2: absolutely. Happy, happy to talk about that. As you know, I mean, we, we at NOAA rely on data from from many different types of platforms, manned or unmanned. Uh, to improve our understanding of the Earth's environment and aid in decision making, our forecasts and whatnot. And in recent years, NOAA has really begun exploring the utility of of unmanned or remotely piloted systems to address a lot of our needs, um, including the use of things like high altitude UAS such as the Global Hawk for applications ranging from observing dust plumes uh, from the Gobi Desert, traversing the Pacific Ocean, polar weather mo- uh, monitoring in the Arctic monitoring river flooding stages um, and, and, quite frankly, also looking at the genesis and the intensification dissipation of tropical cyclones in eastern Pacific Atlantic and Caribbean, like, like Joe talked about with the lower altitude stuff, we're also looking at the use of the high altitude stuff. Um, we also, of course, use the land and ship deployed small UAS to do things such as demonstrate the potential to collect high resolution spatial data on sea ice, glaciers, and uh, uh, the surrounding ecosystem conditions. We look at the use of surface and underwater gliders in the ocean to monitor physical and chemical parameters important for ocean carbon understanding and uh, ocean acidification, For detecting things like harmful algal blooms and other toxins, and looking at water quality conditions in the coastal environment. Um, We use AUVs to, to map coral reef habitats and monitor reef and bottom fish populations in the Pacific, to monitor invasive mussel populations in the Great Lakes. Uh, To look at things like nautical charting, marine incident, and post-hurricane response, and in port security surveys. Uh, We even utilize tagged marine species to understand the movements and the behaviors of large pelagic animals and to measure conditions in in areas that might be covered by sea ice, such as in the Arctic. So, as you can see, there are many, many different types of practical applications and a great deal of potential for these unmanned systems that NOAA is currently looking at.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, that – oh, sorry, go ahead, Gene.
1: I would just say, you know, having grown up on the coast like I did, it was important for us to to know about what was going on. You mentioned the algal blooms, you know, the red tides. We used to go through those, and the the economy that you guys affect. I mean, the the, the fishing economy, the the sports, the sports fishing, the, the sportsmen, the recreational stuff. I mean, it, it's it's vast when you consider the numbers that you guys actually get out there and, and affect people who enjoy the water, enjoy the coast. I think that that uh, that point needs to be made, that you guys are doing a lot of work that affects people very directly.
0: Well, I
2: appreciate that, Gene, and I I agree 100%. I I don't know the actual numbers. I don't don't know that anybody's really truly ever done the math for how much of the economy NOAA truly influences, but uh, I I think it's it's no mistake that NOAA evolved as part of an agency within the Department of Commerce, um, and quite frankly, one of the earliest predecessors of NOAA was uh, the mapping and charting of the coast put together by Thomas Jefferson, and that was largely yep. for trade-based reasons. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yep. I, I think you can't underscore the important role that NOAA play, plays not just in protecting people, but also supporting local economies.
0: Yeah, I was going to make that point about uh, NOAA being uh, part of the Department of Commerce or, or springing forth from there. But it is, it's very important. I mean, you know, a lot of... Uh, A lot of business relies on a weather forecast and uh, modeling and data and everything else. I mean, and and the lives saved and all the rest of that. Everyone loves weather. Um, The other thing is, though, is, uh, you know, uh, Alan, you went through a lot of stuff that uh, you guys are – are using are the different types of platforms and everything else, and again it 's kind of an eye opener and that 's the reason we want to have people like you uh, or you and Joe on the show is to kind of uh, give people a flavor of what 's going on out there. you know you see these systems or you see them in the news on the internet, or you know a, a news story with a couple of hundred words or something It's really hard to get a flavor of the work that that these um, uh, unmanned systems are doing, and, and it's to me it's uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Now you know the, the, the little bit of a uh, I know you're using some of Liquid Robotics stuff, and the reason that I bring them up is uh, Liquid Robotics is I'm I'm the Silicon Valley chapter president of AUVSI, and they are actually uh, members of my chapter, and we're actually going to have a uh, if anyone's in the area we're having a uh, our our chapter meeting April seventeenth at the Liquid Robotics facility. And that ought to be a lot of fun. Uh, I I really like these kind of these field trip deals. You can come out, you can see the I believe it's the uh, the shark, which is a wave glider, and and maybe Alan, you could talk about how you guys are using those.
2: Sure, there's a number of different applications uh, with the wave glider product that Liquid Robotics has and and is continually developing. Um, the, the, The area that I've been most looking into is. Um, in monitoring um, things such as ocean carbon pH and, and ocean acidification-related measurements in the Gulf of Mexico. That's that's some work that I've been doing with uh, some folks at the University of Southern Mississippi and Mississippi State University, and, and it builds off of some work that's being done um, by our sister laboratory in Seattle, the Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory, where they're really trying to look at using these autonomous platforms to look at ocean carbon and, and the role that ocean carbon plays in ocean acidification. But that's obviously a pretty contemporary issue, but, but also the other piece that I've been actively working on with Liquid Robotics is is looking at the use of these platforms, these unmanned surface vehicles, in tropical cyclone, cyclones to test the ability of the, the platform to collect both ocean and atmospheric data at the air-sea interface,
0: um, Mm -hmm. which as
2: Joe pointed out, is a pretty difficult place to collect data. And and the part that he didn't get into too in depth is how critical some of that data may be to understanding intensity changes in storms and and the growth and decay of those storms. Um, So that's one of the areas that we've been been looking at with with liquid robotics amongst a number of different areas that, that NOAA is looking at in general. Um, with the potential use for their platform or platforms like their platform,
0: right? Yeah, I mean uh, there are other uh, manufacturers out there and whatnot. I, I you know, I've just uh, I've kind of seen their their product. They're they're local. Uh, I was kind of uh, even myself. I I'd asked them, you know, I said, well, you know, what's what's the range on this thing? And they're like, hey, you put it in the water in L.A. and it'll swim all the way down there to uh, Australia or Japan, or which I thought was pretty amazing uh That it could do that on its own interesting stuff, and I'm sure it's uh it's uh helpful to like you said measure that kind of where the rubber hits the road <laughs> between the air and the any the ocean and uh so uh, a lot of these systems are allowing you guys to let's say uh collect data that you've 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 until this point never or had a hard time trying to collect is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a fair statement, and I want Joe to be able to chime in here at some point too, but but quite frankly, collecting data just above the deck in a tropical storm environment, really the, the only practical ways to collect it is using autonomous systems in the air or on the ocean, or somewhat by serendipity, if the thing happens to drop over uh, a drifting b- a buoy or a moored platform, um, or dropping buoys in advance of a storm from aircraft, which we've also done, uh, had floating buoys in front of the storm collecting data as well. So th- that's exactly the point is that you want to use these things, I think, in a more proactive way to obtain data that you can't practically or safely get in any other manner. And, and maybe Joe here wants to chime in and add.
0: Yeah, Joe, jump on in here. You know, this is, uh, the format is like a conversation, uh, you know, like a perf- between friends or whatever. And if you don't jump in, you get left out. So get in here, Joe. What do you got to say?
3: No, that's fine. I mean, I've I've been just really just kind of absorbing uh, what's been going on around me. I mean, one of the things that I would say, uh, this is getting into the specifics of, let's say, we're talking about hurricanes, is that, you know, we use these numerical models to predict what they're going to do, and that impacts everybody that's in the way of these things, where they're going to go and how strong they're going to be. Over the last 30 years, we've gotten pretty good at giving a good guess at where they're going to go. We're not perfect, but we're pretty good. And that really is because the large-scale environment largely determines where, that, where that's going to go. So that's called synoptic scale. Just think of it as a big, big almost global-scale kind of pattern that uh, when you look at uh, satellite imagery, you can see these sort of uh, – the atmosphere is just a fluid. You can see the, the, how the fluid moves and how this thing can kind of pick up this storm and move it. What we don't have a good measure on is the intensity. We've quite honestly been awful. Uh, The last 30 years, we've hardly made any advances in that. And a lot of that has to do, there are a lot of reasons, but one Mm -hmm. of the reasons is that we really don't understand the inner workings of this storm as much as we think we do. And if we don't really know what's going on there, what do you think these computer models that are trying to mimic our knowledge can do? They they are just limited. So one of the first things we want to do is to capture uh, this environment by really measuring it accurately, improve our understanding, which there's a lot to improve there. And then once we have this understanding to use that data that we're collecting to compare it to the output from the models so when the models give these fields they're guesses really i mean they're our best right. guess but they're a guess so for the first time we'll be able to compare actual observations with these model guesses and i've already done some of that with some colleagues in the last year and it's not pretty in some cases the the models particularly in the air sea interface they're just they're just off um, i mean they're doing their best it's the best they can do because they didn't have anything to compare it to um, but if the models aren't getting it correctly how can we expect them to to give us the accurate forecast that we need to help save lives and protect property so uh one thing that i think we're working on in the next few years here and it, yes it is years is to get better pictures of what the storm is doing particularly in this region of the storm, but then we can move to other regions that aren't covered well, and UAS can help us, uh, high altitude and different types of UAS can help us that way. Um, but w- once we get that information, then we're going to try to improve these models. So I think UAS play a huge, and UOVs uh, play a huge role in helping us evaluate and then improve these predictive models that uh, you know, NOAA is responsible for to, to help uh, basically um, uh, save lives and property.
0: All right, and and you know this is improving our our uh, our lives and improving, uh, like you said, uh, saving money on property if people are uh, have better forecasts and whatever else. So I'm really excited about that. It's really interesting uh, how you're using this information and plugging it into your models and and how the whole thing is uh, working to make it a, a better system. Uh, Gene, you have anything you'd like to add on that?
1: Yeah, I've just uh, in my experience with uh, unmanned aircraft, Joe, and I think what I'm getting from what you're saying is that uh, you've got a sterling record with the P3 and, and flying through the through the, uh, the the storms at at altitude, and you're getting some spotty data in between from buoys and fixed platforms and and the likes of those those sensors. But you've got a gap in between the, the P3 at FL whatever it's flying at and and the sea surface. And there's a lot going on between, you know, 20 meters and flight level 18, right? And that's where, that's where the UA are, are coming in, and that's where they're going to fill in some of that data. Is that, is that a correct statement?
3: Yeah, that, that's correct. And let me, let me add a little bit of a visual to this. It, it goes even beyond that. We can actually – we have drops on, so we can actually, uh, you know, sensor, drop sensors from our altitude and give us a snapshot look. It's the difference, though, between taking a picture and then, you know, running, running a movie. So we can, can get move, these yeah. quick snapshot pictures of what's happening down there, but we don't get the, t- we don't get the continuity. We don't get, we don't get the, the time lapse of what's going on down there. And why that's and important, <laughs> and particularly for the atmosphere, is that on convective timescales, on the order of, you know, can be minutes to a half an hour to, you know, uh, uh, maybe an hour or so, sort of on that time frame, things can change radically. And that is the area where the ocean uh, is giving its energy up to the atmosphere. And if we don't have a really good handle on not only what it's doing, but how it's changing with time, we really don't have much of a chance. So I think that that is one of the reasons why not only we can't get down there because it's, you know, it's not safe, but the little that we do measure down there is very, very spotty. So I think that UAS and U of E's really give us a great chance to, to tell a better picture and to really capture what's going on in that critical part of the storm.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, one other thing I wanted to add to that, and, and, you know, I was doing some weather work as part of a project I was on, and I'm not really a meteorologist, uh, but the, the amount of energy that's in these storms uh, is just astounding. And, and you know, you're talking about, you were kind of going through that, Joe, and talking about the, the uh, different levels of energy and how things pick up and ebb and flow and all the rest of that. Can, can you just speak about that a little bit, like the types of energy that's in the storms? Is there any way to kind of uh I don't know, put it in brackets maybe. Like a hurricane. Do you want me to
3: I mean I can talk how the energy gets out of the ocean or once the energy is in the storm itself? Uh just to, uh, how would you, even where, just what you like the, me how to how talk about out out I can of, probably uh, talk about both.
0: How it comes out of the ocean and uh, turns into a storm.
3: Well, one of the things that people don't really quite understand, uh, quite realize, and uh, and, and, (laughs) sadly, not just the public, but even some scientists, is that you see these, next time you see someone, a meteorologist talking, they say, well, it's going to go over this warm ocean, and it's going to, it's like a boiling cauldron, here it comes, it's not that simple, it's a flux, meaning that you have to have, it's it's a vertical gradient, so if you've got, let's say, a warm ocean, okay, that the storm is going to go over, you need to have a, a corresponding layer Of atmosphere that's conducive to pulling that energy out so if let's say for example you have 80 degree water if your air temperature right above that happens to be 80 degrees even though that's that's warm there's plenty of energy in the ocean the ocean shut down for business you can't pull that energy out you have to have a great it goes from high to low so you have to have a differential both in moisture and temperature to pull energy out of the ocean and that's something that's lost most of the time, but it's critical, and that's one of the reasons why we have to go measure down there. What is that near-surface gradient? What is that? And the larger that differential between the atmosphere and the ocean, the more energy that can come out. But it's it's subtle. We're not talking huge differences. If you have right. a difference of 50 degrees Celsius, it can make all the difference between you know not grabbing something out and grabbing it out. Can I
1: ask real quick when you're when you're flying your UAs there, the Aerosonde or anything or the Coyote for that matter? Do you guys go up and down in the air column? Do you target one altitude, or do you do you try to move from say, you know, fifty meters over the ocean up to you know a thousand meters? Do you, do you go up and down, or is it pretty much a targeted altitude?
3: Well, what we do is uh, now I'm going to take take our more recent stuff where we're looking at these coyotes and these air deployed UAS. We're really constrained by battery power right now. These lithium ions giving us about an hour of flight time, which is awesome right. compared to the drop signs that just stay up literally two to three minutes. So if you do it from right. a data um, per minute standpoint, it's, it's extremely valuable um, data that we're getting because we're staying up. But in order to preserve that battery, the sounding, we call it a sounding, which is basically a profiling of the atmosphere, we try to do it on the way down. So we come down a little bit slower. Because if you start to porpoise and go up and down, you just drain that battery so fast it it won't happen. Hopefully, we can do more of that as we have three, four hours on battery life. But right now, we're kind of constrained that way. So our sounding comes that way. Um, I would like to stay uh, at certain altitudes. If we can get near, you know, closest to that, uh, let's say within a couple of hundred meters, certainly. Maybe within a couple of hundred feet would be optimal. The problem we also have in a hurricane is that you've got 50-foot waves. Um, with a period, So you know it's like you don't quite know we don't have differential GPS on these things so it's not we're not a, well, I want to get a laser altimeter on board so we know exactly <laughs> where we are right now but then that's a power draw so we have all these practical issues that have to come up against the science issues um, but we would pr- like to stay if we could you know give a nice sounding and then stay at maybe a hundred feet or so if we could.
0: Well that's uh it's funny you know I I listen to you talking there you know and you sound just like everyone else that we talk to and you know I want to put this on there and I want to do that and I I think we can do this and it's the same thing you know but we got to fight the power drain and all the rest of that but I think we can do this and it's really exciting you know I can hear kind of the passion in your voice too Joe yeah we want to do this it'll be great and this all sounds really good and it's and it's uh you're giving us a lot of background and insight you know I would you know, the 50-foot waves in the hurricane, I haven't really, you know, ridden too many hurricanes, but I didn't think about that. But I'm, I'm sure you guys uh, knew about that and plugged that into your equation. But the other thing you were talking about, and the energy coming coming out of the uh, ocean, um, I guess that's that's one of the reasons that the modeling is so hard.
3: Oh, Absolutely. That's- Absolutely. They, especially, you know, the ocean is something that we have to better understand, too. But the ocean's time scales. It's, a, it's a, a fluid that's over a thousand times more dense than air. So think of it sort of as a titanic turning. It's a slow moving thing. So when you actually mix up that ocean, um, it we have to understand how that happens better. Don't get me wrong, but it happens. And on the time scales of a storm, 12 hours or so, because the storm moves on, it's gone out of there. We, I think that the oceans, uh, you know, the, the problem with the ocean and not understanding it fully can be. Tra- can be uh, we can we can get there eventually, but the atmosphere is much more problematic, as I said, because it's a less dense fluid. It changes quickly, and uh, it, it's if if we change by a, let's say a degree Celsius, or or to make it even more science geeky here, a couple of grams per kilogram for moisture, because moisture is a real the gradient in moisture is what we want to. Really capture because that's how the storm really gets much of its energy, not as much in temperature. But if we want to capture those two to three grams per kilogram, which is really nothing, it's about five percent relative humidity differences for each gram per kilogram. Um, And you know, if we want to capture, let's say, that level of detail, we really have to get these types of measurements consistently, not once off, not once in a while. You know, now I've actually. Stolen the mic so long that maybe Alan needs to jump in and say. What well,
0: is. we're actually out of time, which happens every week. I <laughs> do the same deal. I'm like, oh, 45 minutes. It's going to be hard to cover that. We always run out of time, but that's how it works. Anyway, uh, Alan, do you have a website where folks can keep up with this uh, this work you guys are doing? It's fascinating stuff. I, I love it. You got you got somewhere where they could come and look.
2: Well, I, I think the, the best place for the stuff that we've got going on here is just our, our main webpage, which is aoml.noaa.gov. Dot dot aoml.noaa.gov. Dot dot um, there are others for a number of the other UAS and and uh, UOV applications going on across NOAA as well. I'm happy to share those um, if you want. But th- for the stuff that we've been talking about today, primarily the hurricane-related things, uh, yeah, aoml.noaa.gov dot dot th- is is as good as it goes.
0: All right, well, you know, I want to thank uh I want to thank both you gentlemen for coming on fascinating show. Thanks again yep. for uh you know, it, it, these are great. People can listen to these, they can understand how this stuff, like I said, it jumps out of the magazine, it jumps off the web and it's in the in the water, or in the air and how it's being used. I want to thank you guys again. I hope to talk to you again in the future. Maybe next year we'll have you on and uh we we can talk about some of the uh data that you found from this year. So, um, anyway, again, we had a good time, and Gene, uh, Je- thanks for being on.
1: Absolutely. Fantastic show.
0: All right, and we'll see everyone next week. Have a good week.
1: And thanks Bye a lot. Thank you.